0: Hi, it's Eleanor. Today, between episodes of Patient Stories, we are sharing an episode with you from another podcast that we think some of our listeners may enjoy, Walking with Freya, hosted by Annie Frickie. In this 53rd episode of Walking with Freya, Annie interviewed me about genetic counseling. We talked about the kind of work that genetic counselors do and some of the reasons people see a genetic counselor, as well as the differences between an MD geneticist and a genetic counselor. Walking with Freya is a podcast that Annie created to share her story of raising a daughter with Prader-Willi syndrome, and to give space for other parents and caregivers of children with special needs to tell their stories. Check out the link in the show notes to listen to her other podcast episodes. I also interviewed Annie about her experience with her daughter's diagnosis of Prader-Willi syndrome. Watch for that episode to come out in March.
1: Thank you, Eleanor, for being here. Um, and you are a genetics counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics. I'm wondering if you want to go ahead and start maybe just by telling us what it is that you do as a genetics counselor.
0: Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me. So, genetic counselors, we are healthcare professionals. We are not physicians, but we often work alongside physicians. Uh, our training consists of a two year master's degree, a master's of science. Sometimes the name of the degree is human genetics, medical genetics, sometimes it's genetic counseling, but there's a common accrediting body. Uh, We sit for a national certification exam and once someone has passed that exam, they're known as a certified genetic counselor. So sometimes you'll see the abbreviation CGC after someone's name that notes that they not only have that degree, but they also pass that certifying exam. Um, and genetic counselors are licensed in about half of U.S. states at this point, so it's, it's an ongoing effort with the idea that as we become licensed, it'll be easier to be recognized by payers, um, easier to get reimbursed for our services, um, to increase access to genetic counselors um, for patients. Um, Is that, and I I feel like genetic counselors, often it's something that people haven't heard of until or unless they've been referred to a genetic counselor. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, So uh, the common areas we work in, the two biggest areas are probably prenatal and cancer genetics. So if someone is over 35 um, at the time of delivery, expected to be over 35 at the time that they deliver, they might be referred to genetic counseling. Um, If there's screening tests that are done during pregnancy where someone gets an abnormal result or something suggesting an increased risk, that's a reason to be referred to genetic counseling. Um, Within oncology, a cancer setting, if someone's diagnosed with cancer at a really young age, rule of thumb is kind of under, under 50, or has a really striking family history, they'll often be referred to genetic counseling Um, And also for people who are unaffected, but just are aware that they have a family history of cancer, might be referred to genetic counseling also. Um, And increasingly, sometimes doctors do more of this testing on their own, and people will see a genetic counselor on the back end, and there are people who who self-refer also. So there are a lot of guidelines around when a physician should be referring to a genetic counselor, but I think in practice, that's often really tough. Um, it's tough for doctors to remember to do everything they have to do when they have like seven to 10 minutes with a patient <laughs> right? Um, and, and hard to get that that family history. Uh, like most of us going into a doctor's office, if we're asked about family history, we're not exactly rattling it off in in great detail with all of the relevant ages. And so for a physician to actually get that and then to know what to do with it and to think about referring on, um, I think there's a lot of patients who who get left out there where in principle they should be referred, but in practice they they maybe have not been referred to genetic counseling. Uh
1: huh. So, um, <clears throat> well, I have a sure. child with a genetic disorder, so I you know we saw a geneticist pretty early on in the beginning, and maybe I'm I'm wrong about this, but I feel like it's so that is maybe the difference. Like you are more working with. Well, maybe you can explain the difference between like a genetics counselor and a geneticist.
0: Yeah, totally. So, and sometimes I think people use the term geneticist to mean genetic counselor, which adds to the confusion a little bit. But a geneticist, like who you saw, for instance, that would have been... Uh, An MD, so someone who's gone to medical school, done done their residency, often that's in pediatrics, um, but not always. It could be in any area. And then on top of that, they've done a two-year fellowship in genetics. So that's who we think of as a geneticist. Um, And genetic counselors also work in pediatric settings and usually working alongside a geneticist. So the geneticist who's the doctor is actually going to be doing the physical exam, as genetic counselors, we don't do physical exams, we don't provide medical advice, we don't treat patients, so there is, there is a big difference. Um, prenatal and cancer have been two big areas for genetic counselors traditionally, just partly, I think, because those are areas where we can work very independently because there's not usually a physical exam involved, um, but you know, often we're working with those providers who are referring patients, if that makes sense.
1: Uh-huh. So, and then, and then, your job is what to take these the results of these genetics tests and get the information in their background and kind of talk people through possible scenarios or or
0: yeah, so we look, at, we look at an individual's personal and family medical history, um, look at whether or not genetic testing might be helpful or appropriate for that individual. Um, if we're seeing them before testing is done, which is ideal, uh, then it's it's partly a question of looking at what, what are the options, um, how might it be helpful, and is that something that the patient um, or the family is interested in, um, and walking them through what the implications would be of different test results so you don't end up in a situation where you're confused about the results and thinking, well, I thought I was going to learn more. I thought I was going to learn something different. I kind of wish I hadn't had this done, <laughs> something right. like that. Um, but sometimes we do also work with patients just reviewing test results on the back end, which can work very well, also. Um, so, you know, in a pediatric setting, That could be going over the results of testing um, that was, you know, like in your case, like Prader-Willi syndrome and talking with a patient about like, well, what does that diagnosis mean? Um, What are the range of possibilities? Because for most genetic diagnoses, it's not something where... Well, now that you have this, X is going to happen. There's still a lot of uncertainty. So kind of providing both the factual information, but then being there for the family to talk them through what they're feeling, what their expectations and hopes are. And in a pediatric setting, often it can involve making sure that those patients and families are connected to appropriate specialists also. Um, So genetics might be your starting point for a diagnosis, but if you have a child who has Um, A cardiac issue, maybe they need to follow with a pediatric cardiologist. If there's a seizure disorder, they need to see a neurologist. So then the the genetic counselor and the geneticist might be kind of the the point people for making sure that you're connected to all those different specialists who who need to be involved.
1: Yeah. Did you have to do any kind of um, studies in psychology or anything like that? Because I imagine... Um, I guess maybe this is a two-part question, but I imagine you must have couples that come in hoping to have children, wanting to have children, and but they have you know a family history of of this or that, and uh, um,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure that definitely comes up. Um, I say sometimes like our our the training, the master's, is really a mashup of medical genetics and counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think the name of the profession. Can be a little misleading where because it says it's we're called genetic counselors People think that it's not really medically based that it's maybe not necessary um, That it's not as fact-based but at the same time the counseling aspect is so important and more so for some for some patients and for others so our training does include um, You know counseling related skills psychology and most genetic counselors Um, going into grad school have some undergrad background in psychology also. That's not always the case, um, but that's a common profile uh, would be like a bio major and a psych minor. Um, That was not me, (laughs) but that's probably like 80% of people going into genetic counseling programs have that kind of profile going in.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that would make sense because if you're, I mean, so is there a protocol for if, if a couple comes to you and, I mean, like I said, I don't really understand how genetics works, but um, I mean, as far as like how you know, if, if a couple comes to you, I mean, can you can you look at kind of their history and their and their their testing and say, wow, there's a really high chance that um, your child is going to be born with you know this disorder or with you know these challenges? And
0: uh, yeah, some sometimes, and I think sometimes patients are surprised both at um, all that we can tell them and all that we can't tell them. <laughs> There's kind uh-huh. of sometimes like a mismatch between what people are thinking are their higher, high, highest risks and what are actually their highest risks. So I think often when people, if, if especially if someone's self-referring to genetic counseling or coming in really nervous, Um, often it's going to be related to something in their family or someone that was really close to them. So it's really emotional. Uh Um, And, you know, it may or may not be something that actually translates into a high risk for them. But regardless of what that actual probability is, you know, if you've, if you've watched someone who lived with a condition um, that you thought was really devastating, that that's going to be on your mind regardless. So, you know, a starting point usually in genetic counseling is figuring out, where is someone coming from, like, what are their concerns, um, and then talking through, well, what are your actual risks, and what are the options.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you, is there ever, what, um, let's see, how do I want to word this one? <laughs> what do you ever have, like, do you, do you mostly have p- patients coming in that have a history, or do you have, like, people that want to have kids, but they're just, so terrified at the whole concept of having children that, that they wanna start, uh, you know, they wanna cover all their bases even if there's no family history or anything? Or is it mostly people that are, that have, you know, are aware that maybe something's happening?
0: So right. I think, it, yeah, I think, good question. I think it really depends where you practice. So with, with Gray Genetics, um, which is an online uh, telehealth genetic counseling company, so patients can book appointments directly, Um, And we're still a small company. We haven't been around for that long. We don't do really much advertising. So, um, you know, we don't get a lot of patients, but we definitely have those patients who, you know, they're planning a pregnancy and, you know, maybe they're really concerned about something, or maybe they just are the kind of person who likes to research and be really prepared and have all their ducks in a row. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're aware uh, that there's different genetic testing options out there and they just want to make sure that they're infor- as informed as possible before they start um, pregnancy planning or as they're starting to think about planning a family. Um, within a hospital setting, it's more often that someone's going to be referred related to like a specific indication like a known family history of a certain condition that they reported to a physician or um, on carrier testing, like generally like women um, in the U.S. are all screened for, for instance, cystic fibrosis. So if someone comes back as a carrier for cystic fibrosis, um, the recommendation would be to test their partner um, to see if the pregnancy might be at risk for cystic fibrosis. So In some hospital settings, someone's gonna be referred just when the woman comes back as a carrier. In other hospital settings, maybe the physician is going to do the carrier testing for the partner. Um, But I I think people's concerns too, it it really does depend, like my first job out of school, I was working at a public hospital in Newark. Um, So I was working with a lot of low-income patients and immigrants um, and the kind of concerns that they had and the expectations that they had were very different from like later I worked at Cornell and it was in cancer counseling, but you know, people who there's like a hierarchy of needs, (laughs) Uh you know? So when you have, when you have all of your basic needs, met um and especially if you're, if you're educated and high income then sometimes the counseling issues are more around people who you know like kind of want a perfect child which i mean uh-huh. if that if that exists like let me know <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i don't think it does
0: um but you know so it so it really like i think it depends a lot on, on the setting so.
1: uh-huh so that's really interesting so what how would you say it was different working with families of low income and immigrants what what was what were their concerns? More yeah.
0: So so they're. I mean, often very surprised, especially with an immigrant community where they're already navigating a healthcare system that's right. quite different from what they're used to. So, you know, most people don't really know what genetic counseling is, but I think for for immigrant families, sometimes. Um, and for non-immigrants too, and even in you know a different a different setting. But sometimes there's defensiveness in a prenatal setting of being referred to uh-huh. genetic counseling, thinking that someone's going to tell you, um, you know, tests that you have to have done, or that you're you know like you have to have an abortion if if the child has Down syndrome, something like that. And most cases, I found that patients were pleasantly surprised <laughs> to say the least to learn that it was really just the hospital's responsibility to make sure that they knew all of their options and that the decisions were completely up to them um, and I think especially for the immigrant population that was um, that was a, a bit of a surprise that they were pretty happy <laughs> happy yeah. about just to hear that like no these these decisions are completely up to you but the onus is on the hospital to make sure that that they give you all the information um, and in those settings In that setting, um, you know, sometimes people are coming later to prenatal care. um, So sometimes there aren't as many options that can be offered. Some of those are just um, you know, at the time I remember before I would get to work, um, like I was told by other people who were there, like who started work much earlier than I did, people would be lining up outside the door, um, you know, to try to get in for the orientation that they need to start prenatal care there. And there just weren't quite enough spots, <laughs> you know, so no matter how conscientious you were as a patient, sometimes you weren't able to start prenatal care as early as you wanted to, um, and, you know, some, some patients too, like reasons for patients missing appointments, um, you know, we, we send out letters if they miss an appointment, but sometimes if I see a patient on my schedule that was especially, it's like, oh, that's, that's a pretty high risk for whatever reason they were referred and I pick up the phone and call them. I remember one woman was like, Oh yes, today, today I didn't have money for the bus, but now I have it. I'll come tomorrow. (laughs) You know? So there's, there's that kind of issues where there's more day to day things that keep, keep people from, from keeping those appointments or getting the information that they need.
1: Right. Well, and I imagine uh, there's probably a much uh, higher level of distrust, you know, especially um, in the immigrant population, especially, you know, nowadays, I mean, with the, the climate of our country, you know, you know, um, asking them to come in and, and do these tests and, and promising that, you know, it's not going to lead to anything else. I don't know. I yeah. I feel like that would be a, a, an issue to deal with as well.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I was I was there like 2011 to 2013, so it was definitely mm-hmm. a different political climate. But that was that was also something that sometimes would come up where I was like, you know, it's like two different hands. Like the system yes. <laughs> doesn't talk to the INS. Like one system doesn't talk to the other. That's just like the way it works. But it, it's it's weird. Um, but yeah, they're already under you know different life stressors, regardless, more in different life stressors. Um, at the same time, I feel like. Um, they're because more often the patients would be used to having things in life not go that well. Mm. <laughs> they're less surprised by um, the potential of bad news, and mm. I think more grateful for things when things went well. You know, I think, and I mean, a lot of people say, you know, don't care boy or girl, this or that. I just like a healthy child. But I've I felt it more. I feel like I heard it more in that setting yeah well that's interesting yeah it's kind of well i kind of took us down a little tangent
1: (laughs) yeah no it's good well i studied anthropology in school and uh, that's well i think it's also important to talk about just you know how even you know in the same geographic setting pretty much like people can have such different experiences and so often they're you know a lot of it is based on on money or um but yeah that's a whole other tangent Um, yeah
0: so it makes the profession interesting you know and it, it means um that like what you do as a genetic counselor is really different, not only depending on if you work like now, a lot of genetic counselors work for labs, you know, I'm a little bit of an outlier and working in like private practice. Um, But in a hospital setting, it's so different depending on, you know, not just like cancer prenatal, but what group of patients you're working with. Yeah.
1: Well, you're based out of New York now, right? Are you? Are you in New York? Yeah, I
0: live. I live in Brooklyn, but since it's a telehealth company, all of our consults are done through phone or video conferencing, so we can see patients, um, you know, anywhere in the U.S. or really anywhere in the world.
1: And do they have to have? So this is the uh, graygenetics.com. Right? Uh, yes, and people can check that out. Do you have to have a physician recommend? Um, can anybody just come to your website and and find a yeah.
0: sir mm-hmm so no recommendation or referral is needed anyone excuse me anyone can book an appointment we don't take insurance at this point it's just one of those things where We're a small enough company and reimbursement has gotten better for genetic counseling, but all of the hassles of dealing with insurance and figuring things out, (laughs) that might be something we offer in the future. But at this point, we are self-pay and we can always provide a receipt for people um, if they want to submit to insurance for possible reimbursement. But um, anyone can come to the website and book an appointment. Okay.
1: Yeah. And that's G R E Y. Uh, genetics. And if you would mind, I, I read the blurb about how you came to the name of that. Would you mind uh,
0: telling the audience? Oh yeah. You're making me kind of go back to my about page. Oh, no, but I, it's not, not really. I, I remember, but I know it's, I know it's, that's where you must've read the blurb. So, I mean, part of it, I, I don't think I put this part on my about page, but you know, you have to come up with a name for a company. <laughs> yeah. It has to be something that, That not already taken ideally it's something where you can get a related url um, something that's easy to pronounce um i think i was like you know in doing brief reading um you know this is like an online company online service it was like okay it's good to have one word that's pretty common and easily googleable and recognizable related to your service and then another word that's a little more random so it's partly that um and then just that genetics in general i feel like in in media headlines, often an article covering genetics will do a pretty good job with the issue, but the headline will usually um, suggest like the gene for X and kind of this idea of genetics is deterministic when it's really much more complicated. Um, So that's part of where gray came from, just that genetics isn't black and white. There's a lot of gray. Um, And then even the spelling of the word gray, I was going to spell it um, G-R-A-Y because that's just like the typical American spelling. And I ended up going with G-R-E-Y because it just, I think it looked a little bit better because of the two E's and genetics that follow. <laughs> I would um, just <laughs> <enjoy> that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was why. I mean,
0: it, it was going to be gray because I'm American and that's how we spell gray. And then like looking at it visually, I was like, oh, it looks, it looks better with three E's. Um, but it's also it's kind of like a nerdy genetic reference. So in genetics, you can have a change in a base pair that doesn't result in a different amino acid. Um, so and so that that would be an example of like a spelling of a word where you have gray or gray, and like regardless of how you spell it, it's the exact same meaning. Um, it doesn't change the meaning of a sentence. Yeah
1: yeah, I like that. So. I, I don't uh, understand the genetics of my daughter's disorder much um, and is that a detriment to my daughter? How important is it for me to understand the genetics uh, part?
0: That's that's interesting and I when you because you did see a geneticist when she was initially diagnosed right? Yeah.
1: Yes. And mm-hmm. have
0: you and um, do you have follow-up appointments with them?
1: Um, she retired. We had a few follow-up appointments, um, but then she retired, um, but you know I know with PWS there are three different ways that you can get it. And so mm-hmm. I, I remember reading in the beginning that there um, I think that depending on how you know how she came about that having it uh, can slightly affect some of the symptoms. Um, and but she has the most common kind, the deletion of part of her 15th chromosome. Um, But that's kind of, but that's all I know. And I don't know if I should understand it more. Like if, if I can leave that to the doctors and the geneticists or, or if,
0: uh, yeah. I I mean, I mean, to me, what you just said lets me think that you do understand it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, I mean, you can always go into, there's always like, different depths of understanding and then there's just like limitations of what we know but I think I think it's really helpful like first of all that you know that it's genetic um and I mean you're obviously someone who um you know has a lot of formal education and you're a writer and you're a poet so you're you're coming at this from like a different level of knowledge um but I, I think it's it's One reason uh, having a genetic diagnosis can be helpful for some people um, is just understanding, you know, this is not something, you know, it's not because you like drink the wrong kind of milk in pregnancy or because like you didn't sleep on your you should have been sleeping on your left side the whole time you know there's all (laughs) these things that people worry about um and that's definitely like a part of the genetic counseling piece is like what people bring into it and like sometimes people are holding on to explanations that just like from a scientific perspective at least do not make sense um, you know, so knowing that this is, you know, it is genetic, it's related to a deletion on one of her two copies of chromosome number 15. It's not related to anything that you did or that you didn't do. You know, I think like that's really like the basics that I think for a parent with a child with a genetic condition is just like really helpful for them to know that. Mm-hmm. Um and then with deletions, you know, whether it's related to PWS or another condition, most of the time that's a random event.
1: Mm-hmm. So I
0: think that's really helpful to know for people. I know you have two other daughters, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's helpful to know too. You know, I've occasionally would meet with a with a patient. I remember, again, like when I was working at the public hospital and she'd had a, a child. It wasn't um, – It wasn't. It was probably nothing where a genetic test would show, would show um, like a change that explained what had happened, but she had some birth defect, and now I'm forgetting exactly what it was. Um, Like an, I think it was an abdominal wall defect. But, you know, she never really got an explanation for it and she was pregnant a second time and she actually had an abortion with that second pregnancy and it, it would have been like it was a pregnancy that she would have wanted, but she was so afraid
1: of oh. the same
0: thing happening again. Um, which no one could tell her that it will never happen again, but the particular birth defect that she had the first time, um, you know, it would have been like kind of like one of those lightning strikes sort of things like very like quite un- like less than 1% chance of it happening again. Um, so I think recurrence risk, like that's what's really helpful for people to know. Is this likely to happen again? You know for some people it's something like a deletion. It's quite unlikely. Um, for some people, it's, well, you know, this is something related to something being inherited from each parent, and there's a 25% with each pregnancy. Um, so the, the the chance of something happening again, like that really varies, and I think that's something that's really helpful for for parents to know as they're planning families. um to know what their testing options are, if they want to do that, but also just in thinking of like, do they want to have more children? And then how do they feel as they're going through that pregnancy, especially when, you know, maybe they're feeling more concerned than they really need to, if they got more factual information about their risks.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Education is important. <laughs> but, and it, and it's i mean i did i do remember that that feeling learning that it was a genetic disorder and this this finally this sense of relief of like okay it it wasn't me i did, you know it wasn't that room that i painted before i found out i was pregnant it wasn't that you know i drank the milk cuz i got pregnant um right when uh, fukushima happened and we live on the west mm-hmm. coast and uh-huh. so you know, all, you know they said all that radiation was coming over and I was drinking milk because I get really sick and that's all I could drink. And, you know, so I just went through all of these things of, you know, I, you know, I did this. And um, so it was, there was a relief in finding out that, you know, it was, it's a, well, first off, it's on the chromosome she got from her dad. So, (laughs) So, and he says, he he used to say, oh yeah, it was that uh, Grateful Dead show back in the 80s, but (laughs) but it was just a uh, like you said a lightning strike just a, a random event and and uh it was kind of nice to know that um i hadn't caused it because there is that that fear and that feeling and then when we got pregnant with the third one um they offered to do genetic testing but you know they said it just wasn't really i mean the chance of of having another child with pws was like less than 1% so yeah. i mean we We wouldn't have done anything different anyway. So we, we, you know, chose not to
0: like, even if you wouldn't have done anything different anyway, probably nicer to go through your pregnancy knowing less than 1% instead of, I don't know, 50%, 25%. Oh yeah. (laughs) I was just kind of like wondering. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yes.
0: And it's totally, you know, I think it's just normal human psychology to look for explanations. Um, And when we're not given one, usually we come up with one, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and if, if those are like adaptive and helpful to people, like they don't have to be scientific, like that can be fine. But sometimes, sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes it's, it's harmful or people are blaming themselves um, when, and that's, that's, I think, especially when a genetic explanation can really, really help people like cope and adapt
1: yeah it really did for us it was uh yeah it was a a life changer in a lot of ways but um you know definitely in our perception of of how we were you know of what was happening and why and um
0: yeah and and then i mean kind of back to your question of if you should know more about the genetics of of your daughter's diagnosis I do think that's. I think it's changing a little bit. Um, prader Willie is, you know, not common, but you're in a group of. It's a it's a well recognized condition. There's a lot of support out there um, for parents with kids who have more rare conditions. I think sometimes um, knowing a little bit more and pursuing some advocacy on your own can be a little helpful. We're just kind of like we're right at a point where some gene therapies are starting to become like realistic and real and available instead of this kind of pie in the sky, um, theoretical. Um, but at the same time, it just takes time for these things. So I think, you know, it's, it's every, everyone kind of deals with things a little bit differently, but, um, you know, I think for most people, it's not helpful if you're like constantly scouring the internet for the latest research paper, because the idea that that recent research paper on PWS is going to translate into anything like meaningfully different. <laughs> right. And then in the near future is, is really, really, really small. So I think it's, it depends on people's personality, but it's kind of that balance. Like, yes, it's helpful to make sure that you're up to date and that there's nothing like new, but I think you can drive yourself crazy by trying to follow everything so closely because it takes so long for anything in research to kind of trickle down to making a difference for patients at a clinical level.
1: Yeah. Well, so I wanted to um, ask you about your podcast for a minute, let people know about your podcast. It's called Patient Stories. And do you want to tell us a bit about what you do with that?
0: Yeah. So Patient Stories, I started not too long after I started Gray Genetics. And it was partly kind of thinking like, what can I do in terms of like marketing, content marketing that I would actually enjoy? <laughs> um, and it actually hasn't been that helpful in terms of content marketing. I don't think we <laughs> had a single patient book an appointment <laughs> related to the patient stories podcast. Um, but I've I've really enjoyed doing it. So it's always I interview. Sometimes a genetic counselor, usually a patient who has a certain genetic condition, or sometimes a parent, a caregiver of someone who has a genetic condition. Um, And there's a tiny bit of genetics. Like I'll ask like, well, what is this condition or what's your understanding of it to kind of frame the interview? But I really try to keep the focus psychosocial. Um, It's really about focusing on a patient's experience. Um, It's not intended to be genetics education, medical education, medical advice. Um, And I have some patients at this point who just hear about the podcast and reach out to me and are excited to share their story. And it's nice to be able to offer a place for people to do that. Um, And then there's some people who I'll reach out to too. So, you know, for instance, we've done quite a few interviews related to hereditary cancer genetics, especially BRCA. Um, But and we've done some related to pediatric genetics conditions, but like we hadn't done anything related to Down syndrome, which is a huge, um, you know, a huge condition in, in genetics. It comes up like talking about Down syndrome happens a lot in genetic counseling, and then it's one of the more common prenatal diagnoses when it comes to genetics um so we have some of those scheduled for january so in some in some cases like i'm actually reaching out to people to look to look to have like more representation from different conditions um or more diverse audience too or more diverse guests too so um a lot of white women <laughs> yeah. email email in, which is great. Um, but sometimes, like, I kind of have to go out of my way to to look for men who might want to be interviewed or someone who's not white who wants to share their story, who's who's had a different experience.
1: Yeah, I I can relate to that. I mean, I'm I'm uh, fifty episodes in, and uh, I've had no dads <laughs> for one thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you
1: know, there's um, which I think you know maybe. It says a lot to, you know, who feels willing and empowered to tell their story. Yeah. Or who feels comfortable with sharing it. And um, yeah, you know, we have a lot of work to do in our society
0: (laughs) and sometimes I think it's it's who it would occur to and that's why I do I do reach out to some people or we have um, we have an internship program that I'm always tweaking but so often we'll have like a patient stories intern, and they'll kind of be tasked with like looking for people to reach out to but you know some people's just you know maybe a man is like less likely to think like I could talk about my child's diagnosis but you know if they're asked they might say oh sure (laughs) right
1: right Well, so have you, has there been something, you know, doing this podcast, has there been something that just, uh, that you, that you were surprised to learn, or that, uh, you know, changed your, kind of your perception of, of the patient experience, or your approach to your job? I mean, has it been kind of, like, you you know, what you expected, or has, has there been a story, or or somebody who kind of opened
0: up? Yeah, I don't think, nothing's really surprised me in a way that's, changed how I approach when I'm talking to patients in a genetic counseling scenario but um, a few things have come up that have surprised me so I, I first of all I really wanted it not to be an advertorial for genetic counseling <laughs> uh-huh. so I really I, I like hearing what people's experiences with genetic counseling have been um, and they're not always positive often they are and sometimes people say that they didn't have a good experience and they didn't feel that the person was like sympathetic or give them good or complete information. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised by that, I guess, because I've just heard like anecdotally enough from, from people who are non-GCs seeing genetic counselors. I don't think it happens often. And, and often that, I mean, there's always an issue of what actually happens and what someone remembers. Um, you know, when mm-hmm. you're hearing information that you're not, really weren't expecting to hear, <laughs> you know, sometimes like some of those negative feelings get projected onto the genetic counselor. Um, but I guess I've been encouraged not by the fact that there are enough of his stories, but that um, it's, it's been something that patients have been able to share. And there's a lot of genetic counselors who listen to the podcast. So I think that's actually been helpful for genetic counselors to hear, um, you know, because otherwise you're not going to have a patient that comes back to you and says, you know, here's, here's my evaluation. <laughs> this is what you should do differently. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: um, and it's, it's might be like less instructive to hear that from like a one-off scenario where you're both deeply personally involved and kind of conflicted. But I think for genetic counselors in general to hear these instances of people not having good experiences um, is helpful. I had one genetic counselor specifically tell me that She feels like she's gotten so much out of the podcast because we just, we see patients, you know, for our hour or for a couple one hour appointments, but we don't see everything else that they go through. And Uh it's just really helpful to, to get that broader long-term perspective about everything that they're going through. Um, I remember one of my first interviews, maybe even my first interview was with a patient who I actually saw when I was working at Cornell in GI cancer counseling, who has Lynch syndrome. And she'd written, she'd she'd written about it publicly. So I knew that she was public with her diagnosis. And I asked her to do the interview. But it was funny, because like, what I remember is, you know, for me is like me as a genetic counselor, getting her test results, there was a known mutation in the family. So I knew it was a 50% chance that she would have Lynch syndrome, which is a predatory cancer syndrome, it doesn't mean that you will get cancer, but it's very high risk for a lot of different cancers. You need a lot of surveillance um, and a 50% chance that she would not have that in the average risk. Um, And I probably identified more with her because she was like also a young female, kind of like working in the arts in New York. Um, And her result came back positive. And so, you know, I remember getting those results and I remember giving them to her Um, and for me, that's such a strong memory, but for her, you know, she, she does remember getting the results, but for her, it's like living with that afterward, (laughs) you know, after, after she left the appointment, everything else. Um, yeah. So I guess those things have, have shifted my perspective a little bit. Maybe, um, I think the best thing that I've seen come out of the podcast, which was unexpected is someone who I interviewed, who had a child with a rare condition who'd reached out to me um and wanted to share her story and then after the podcast she there were several i think two other families who had children with the same condition who found her and reached out to her and there were families who wanted to be in touch with other people who had the same condition, but they weren't on social media and they didn't want to be on social media. Um, I think so many patients now find each other on social media. So that was really gratifying just that, you know, it actually created connections between these um, families who had a child with the same rare condition.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Oh, that's good. That's what, that's the uh, beauty of uh, podcasting and um, you know, good, Good for them. Good for you for doing it. And that's awesome. They could, they could find each other and make a community. And
0: yeah, I think a few, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but a few months ago I saw um, a news article or something in my inbox or whatever, but that Google had changed its search so that now it also searched for titles of podcasts. Um, And I think that that has probably helped a little bit too, or will help, you know, like now if you, um, you know, it wasn't pulling up podcasts before, but now it will. Yeah. Good.
1: Is there anything else that you wanted to say about, uh, gray genetics or what it is that you do or your podcast or, um, anything that you feel like we missed?
0: Mm -hmm. Maybe, I guess I'll say, cause I think most, most of your audience is going to be parents of of children with special needs yes or not necessarily yeah
1: yeah that's the majority I would say
0: yeah I would say maybe the other thing is just like there's so many um I I don't know if like people in you know in that audience look at this a little differently but a question I get a lot in general (laughs) it's just that um, what about 23andMe? <laughs> what about ancestry testing? There's just like this whole world where genetics is suddenly like cool or like you could get it as a gift. <laughs> so there's, there's just this big commercialization of genetic testing. Um, and you can get some good information from that. But, you know, there's like privacy and security risks with all of it. It's usually not a high quality genetic test. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, people are frustrated with the medical system and so it's, it's such a hassle to figure out your insurance or to get a doctor's appointment or maybe to have a doctor who you feel a connection with or who is listening to you. So it, it seems so easy to order a test online to get more information, but usually the tests that you can get in that way aren't providing you with the greatest information. Um, and if you're, you know if you're interested in genetic testing related to a health risk, it really is helpful to talk to a genetic counselor first, even if like with gray genetics, you know people are paying out of pocket for genetic counseling, but you know sometimes you end up spending a lot of money for tests that aren't helpful. <laughs> uh-huh. So a, a genetic counselor can actually help with, um, you know talking you through whether and if testing could be helpful and then can also help with. Um, often identifying a test that would be covered by your insurance because genetic testing, you know, the coverage by insurance, um, you know, it's not all across the board. Great. But generally it's pretty good with most insurances. Um, And often genetic counselors can be helpful in, in getting you testing through a company where you're not going to have an out of pocket or it's going to be lower than it would otherwise be. Um, If, if you just go through your your doctor, for instance, and they send maybe where they would normally send for any testing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for clarifying that. I actually I had thought about asking about the twenty three andMe, um, not so much about you know testing for anything other than just you know like where you come from or whatever. Um, As my husband and I did it, but we thought about doing it for our children. Uh, just to see what kind of mix they have. And I did have the thought of like, would they, I mean, would they find, would they notice Freya's deletion? And would they say something? I don't know. I thought that was interesting, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't
0: know. I don't know if they actually would with a deletion. They do, um, they'll do some controls where they'll see, I don't know if they do a karyotype or they're just doing like a broad test where they, they're doing some sort of, um, as part of quality control to see if someone's like 46 XX female or 46 XY male. Cause I've, you know, there's some patients who come, come back and like, that's a surprise. (laughs) Like that's how they find out. There's just these incidental findings. Like people start out thinking like, oh, this is a fun test. And they're like, I've always identified as a male? And why am I coming back 46 XX? So, you know, and some of those things can, you know, end up being like helpful or interesting, but it's, it's usually like when people are starting out doing these tests, it's like, you know, they're just looking for like ancestry and it's kind of fun. Um, And then it can kind of open up all of these other issues that people may or may not be happy to encounter.
1: Right. So that's where you come in. So um, yeah, if you're looking for some real genetic testing and uh, some answers, See a genetics counselor. Don't worry about 23ME. Yeah. <laughs> <order my> <laughs> <me>. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well and there, I think 23ME, I mean, the biggest, the biggest thing um, that I that gets the most news coverage, maybe the most misunderstanding, is they do testing of three common variants in the BRCA gene. Um, which the three variants are common in individuals of Ashkenazi ancestry. So if you have one of these variants, it's a high lifetime risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and some other cancers, but breast and ovarian are the biggest. Um, But I've, I've heard people comment like, Oh, I'm so glad my, you know, my BRCA results through 23 and me were negative. I don't have a BRCA gene. Right. (laughs) it's Like, well, we all have a BRCA genes, like two copies and they're only testing for three changes out of over a thousand possible. Oh changes.
1: wow! Okay. So there's
0: and they, twenty three and me actually, I think they do a really good job with their copy and all of the fine print. And they've had focus groups where they've said like, yes, everyone understood the limitations of this testing. And I interviewed one patient and she was like, yeah, I can see how that would work perfectly in a focus group setting, you know, but she's looking at, (laughs) you know, when you're looking at results, like you're getting back from the gym and you're checking your email quick and you're, you know, the way we're interacting with things online, um, you know, you're not, you're not reading things the same, the same way. So I think there's, there's potential for, for false reassurance too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much. I really enjoyed having you on and and talking with you. And um, yeah, I definitely learned some things and uh, grateful for the work that you're doing. And so, yeah, thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on.